I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right, welcome back everyone to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I have, a, I have a fun one today. I have Alan Lau. Alan is a serial entrepreneur, uh, leader in Canada's tech community and a sought after speaker uh, in voice and entrepreneurship, the innovation economy and benefits of a diverse workforce. Alan was the CEO and co-founder of Toronto-based Wattpad, a global multi-platform uh, entertainment company for original storytelling. And I'm sure we'll talk about storytelling because that's one of the topics that I'm very interested in. Wattpad has grown into a community of 94 million people, has uh, written more than a billion uploads on the platform, and stories have been adapted onto other platforms, become blockbuster movies and number one Netflix hits. So I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stories that, that Alan will be able to share. Uh, in 2021, uh, the company was acquired for more than 600 million USD. And Alan also sits on the board of Toronto International Film Festival, as well as uh, Mars Discovery uh, District which is one of North America's largest uh, urban innovation hubs. Uh, and he's also a member of the Canadian Council of Innovators, a uh, lobby group that advances interests of Canadian technology companies. Um, and he's also the co-founder of uh, Two Small Fish Ventures, a fund that invests in early stage internet companies with strong network effects. And I'm sure we'll talk about network effects because I hear that buzzword a lot and I'm not 100% sure I know what it means. Uh, and, and lastly, uh, Alan was named uh, twice as one of the top 50 most influential people by Toronto Life. So. Alan, that was a mouthful. And uh, again, really appreciate you joining me. Thanks for inviting me. So, Alan, I, I like getting started with kind of the origination story. You know, I'm, I'm always fascinated with, you know, what someone's childhood looked like that got them to this, 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 this place. So if, if you wouldn't mind just taking me a little further back than you probably typically go and give me an I, uh, you know, the kind of the Coles notes of, uh, of what that childhood looked like and what some of the you know, the, 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 the things that you think happened that ultimately led to this entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, uh, I was born and raised in Hong Kong and uh, my teenage year, the formation year was uh, the one of the best times in, in Hong Kong during the 80s when uh, this uh, city transformed itself from perhaps, uh, you know, just like any other, other city in the world to become a um, great metropolitan, a world city. Uh, so uh, that was a, a very interesting period of, of my life. And uh, But I, I would say I'm pretty introverted. Uh, I, my biggest uh, um, aspiration at that time was, uh, uh, was that I want to become a rocket scientist. I, I just loved the stars, the rocket science, and uh, how to build rockets, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, and also the, the science behind the rocket ship and all, all those, you know, gravitational forces and, and, and all those things. Uh, uh, and then um, in the late 80s, my family, moved together uh, to Canada, to Toronto. I guess uh, what happened was my, um, the extended family on my mother's side, they moved to Toronto in the 70s. So um, in the 80s, um, the, the father's side also decided, well, let's, let's move to Canada as well. So pretty much uh, in a couple of years, uh, everyone 
moved here towards the end of the 80s. And uh, I pretty much don't have a lot of relatives in, in Hong Kong anymore. So I um, enrolled into U of T engineering, became an engineer, and uh, uh, I still wanted to be a rocket scientist. But at that time, like personal computers really started to, to take off and uh, mobile communications also started to, to, to take off, perhaps not as advanced as uh, PCs at that time. But these became the two um, areas of interest, I, was, I would say. So becoming a rocket scientist is becoming less important to me. And I spent a lot of time playing around with computer, especially writing software, because I feel like writing software is different than any other technologies invented in, in the past was because it's so quick. You know, in an hour, you can write a program and you can see the results right away. Even if you're like building hardware, it takes a little bit of time, much more time consuming. And you have to solder, you have to assemble things. It, it, it's just not as you don't get the instant gratification, if, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so uh, after graduation, I decided, well, uh, perhaps uh, software is the, is the way to go from my career perspective. So I joined uh, IBM. That's my first job. But pretty much day two, I knew it's the wrong company for me because it's so structured. It's, it's a gigantic company. Uh, everything that you have to follow a process, you know, uh, is very, very constrained and restrictive. Um, so um, I don't think I really knew what entrepreneur or entrepreneurship meant at that time, but uh, um, I, I just don't feel like that was the right environment for me. So nine months later, joined a startup called Darina. Um, uh, uh, one of the reasons was my my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, we met in engineering school together. She, when we graduated, I went to IBM. She went to the startup called Arena, and uh, I saw her having so much fun. And then uh, nine months later, I joined her uh, in in the same company. So, so Alan, I, I love how you started with you know describing yourself as an introvert. You know, I, I speak to a lot of young people who want to you know, go down the path of that entrepreneurial journey, but they, they, they look around and they think to themselves that, oh, you know, the average entrepreneur, you have to be an extrovert. You got to be outgoing. You got to be this, you know, natural born leader. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of very accomplished, you know, introverted leaders and CEOs. And, you know, when I, when you think about not only, you know, technology startup, but also one that's in the entertainment business, you probably wouldn't think of someone who would be, you know, introverted, quote unquote, as being, you know, the one of the co-founders and, and, and CEOs of those companies. So for those that are listening that that are, you know, thinking to themselves like, yeah, I'm also an introvert. Like, how did he do it? You know, what's what's your what's your take on this this idea of, you know, the stereotype to be, you know, a quote unquote leader or entrepreneur? Yeah, I would say skills like public speaking uh, is something you can learn over time. Uh, you don't have to master it in day one. I guess might be a little bit harder for the introverted people to to learn how to do public speaking. That that's just a matter of fact. But there's also the the, the perception that you you have to speak publicly as as the CEO. That that's actually 
Absolutely not true. Because uh, as a CEO, you need to communicate. Please don't get me wrong. Communication is, is extremely, extremely important as a CEO. You have to communicate your vision. You have to communicate your mission. You have to communicate the company strategies to perhaps 10 employees. But for a scale up, you have to do this for in front of a hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. So communications, extremely important. But communications doesn't mean you have to speak. You can write as well. So um, if you look at uh, how I uh, led the company, how I managed the company, not saying I don't, I didn't uh, uh, speak at all hands, but for the most part, the most effective form of communication for me actually was the written word. I, I sent out, I write a lot of blog, internal blog posts. I communicate uh, through email and other uh, other forms of communication, uh, mostly written. I, I think that that to me, it, in a way, I if, if if you think the being introverted is a deficiency, I actually turned this around and, and leveraged that as my unfair advantage because I'm introverted. My I would say my written communication probably stronger than than our CEOs, and I'm, I'm actually use use that to the maximum. And I'm sure you know, given today's environment, and, you know, the, the young people that are entering the workforce, specifically in technology, they're extremely used to communicating in written form, right? I think that you know, potentially 20 years ago, that may not have been as effective, but I, I would agree with you today. That is a that is a very acceptable form. If you know, I'd say most are actually probably more comfortable communicating, you know, through written form. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. So in a way, timing actually works out for me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so take me back. So you're, you realize that IBM is not for you. You, you start, uh, you, you join this, this, this uh, you know, startup. What did that journey look like within the startup? And, and when did you venture out on your own? Yeah, so uh, um, when my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Eva joined the company. It was, I think it was 25 people or something. Nine months later, when I joined, it was close to 100 people. And when the company got acquired by Symantec three, four years later, we were 700, maybe even 800 people. I can't remember the exact number. I think it's seven, over 700 probably uh, is the right number. Like I've never experienced or never imagined I would experience anything like that. You know, when I first joined the company, I had to share a desk with another person because the company was growing so fast that they didn't even have time to find a space or find a desk for me. So I was sharing a desk with another person for another year. So that was my first uh, rocket ship experience. I know how a fast-growing company would look like internally. Everything was broken every six months because it was growing so fast, right? But because of that fast pace and everything is broken and, and fixed up again and got broken again because it scaled onto another level, in, in a way, you kind of learn through osmosis. You, you learn how, how the company would cope with that. So after the acquisition, uh, the founders uh, and some of the key people left, and then I stayed on for another few years. It was very still very early in my career. So after the acquisition, I became 
part of Symantec, which was uh, one of the largest uh, PC software companies in, in the world, and they have thousands of employees, right? So in a way, I, I'm, I was back to that uh, large corporation, more structured, not as structured, not as big as IBM, but still a more structured environment. But because I think I, I also mature from, you know, <laughs> Uh, I can speak for other people too. You know, when you first graduate, you are technically an adult, but practically still a kid, right? I I think I had the maturity to to kind of perform in that environment. So so that actually helped me some of the larger company organizational skills. Uh, I picked that up uh, during that time. So um, uh, after a few years, the, the the arena founders they they started an incubator and venture capital called Bryce Park. It was a no brainer for me to to join them. I I joined very early. It was the incubator literally was three months old, and then I was with with, with Mark Exactly, yeah, Mark Skipinka, Tony Davis, and and uh, those guys. You know, uh, we. Um, uh, so, so I don't know if you know, but but Anthony Lipschitz works at Firepower. Oh, yes, yeah. So you know that that became the the mafia, right? The yeah. Arena Mafia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were so many different uh, startups uh, spun out of that, or spun out of that group. You know, people started started their own or joined other startups. So uh, the Arena had the, the Arena. Mafia had the fingerprints uh, on on so many uh, di- different uh, companies uh, afterwards. So anyway, I joined uh, Bryce Park, uh, helped quite a few companies incubated very early stage startups, uh, of course, right? But uh, uh, after helping a few, I started my own within Bryce Park. So my first company, uh, Tira Wireless, Tira as in Tiramisu, you know, that's how we picked the name, as a wireless uh, mobile gaming mobile app company mobile deployment software company started within Bryce Park in 2001 and that one was venture backed as well uh, we grew the company to maybe 150 people or something like that uh, you know uh, till like 2006 when I left so what pad how did uh, how did that come to be yeah, it's uh, kind of related to Tira. Uh, Tira, as I mentioned, uh, more like a mobile gaming company, but remember it was 2001, 2002. I'm not talking about the iPhone games that or, or Android games that people are, are playing today. I'm talking about the very primitive games that Snakes. people play. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, candy bottle gear phone. Yeah. Uh, but there's a, um, for people who know me would know, uh, but for people, people, people who don't, don't know me, might not know. I don't. I don't play games. I, I'm, I'm not a gamer. You know. Uh, so um, the the technology that we built, I was very very passionate about. But uh, the vertical, the gaming vertical, wasn't wasn't quite me. We we kind of um, started the company. Uh, not focusing on gaming first, but we kind of, because most of our customers were gaming publishers and that the company became a gaming company, but I wasn't passionate in gaming. And that's why in my spare time, I I um, uh, did a prototype in my basement. You know, I 
I love to read. So I built a mobile reading app on my Candy Bar Nokia phone. And that was 2002. Um, the, of course, the, it's very, very hard to use because the screen size was so small. To read anything, even a paragraph, you have to scroll down 20 times, right? No, no one would use that app. Uh, so I did not pursue the, this idea until uh, 2006 uh, when the flip phone, the Marola flip phone came out. The screen size was now, of course, it's still primitive, but at that time it was state of the art. The screen size was large enough to read and that was actually the right call. The timing was right. So I resurrected that idea and uh, my co-founder Ivan, uh, keep a long story short, he came up with a very similar idea at the same time. So once we, once we discovered that both of us are working on the same idea, we joined for, force and, and started WordPad together in 2006. So, so talk to me about this idea of network effect. I think that that word gets used a lot, but for those, I mean, you're, you're clearly an expert in what that means. Can, can you define it for me properly and, and, and tell me, you know, what people get wrong about this idea of network effect? Yeah, a lot of people confuse uh, about uh, or, or cannot distinguish network effects versus virality. Those are very, two very different things. People, things can go viral. Doesn't mean it has the it has built or has uh, part of a network. When people talk about network effects, basically, um, it's based on one core principle: the value of the network becomes more and more valuable as more people are using it. So for example, the telephone network, if I'm the only person on this planet, or maybe with five other people on this telephone network, it's not that useful. I can only call up my mom, <laughs> but nobody else, right? But as the, we we saw the the local, first the local network and then the mobile network and then the global mobile network, more and more people added to the mobile phone system, like the Rogers or, or, the, or the Bell. Not only you can call everyone on the Rogers network, but everyone can call someone, someone else, your friend on the Bell network and possibly someone in the AT&T network in, in the US. And that's much more valuable as the network, the size of the network grows. So um, that's the, the, the premise of uh, Wattpad as well. In a way, Wattpad is uh, like a double-sided marketplace, uh, for lack of a better term, that, that connects uh, writers and readers. Uh, writers would upload whatever they want to write, uh, mostly fictional stories, uh, on the network. And uh, we could find them audience. And uh, as more readers come to read the content, that creates more incentive for the writers because they can have a larger audience and more writers would write. And more, write more writers mean more content. More content means uh, more, better content or more content to attract more audience. It is just the flywheel would just fly uh, faster and faster. And uh, once the network effect is really strong, as in the case of Wattpad, like we have close to 100 million readers and of which about 5 million are writers and they upload a million new chapters every day. The, it's so high traffic that uh, it's almost impossible for someone to build a very similar network and dis displace that. 
And when did you when did you figure out that that was going to be the model? You said you started it as like kind of a mobile reading app. How, how, how did it transition? Yeah, we 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 had this uh, network. Uh, of course, I can talk about this more accurately right now. You know, some of the terminology, even like network effects, yeah, so it didn't exist. Well, yeah. it didn't quite exist, or at least yeah. not as uh, popular as in today. But we, even early on, since day one, we knew we wanted to build a network uh, that connects readers and writers. However, the network. Uh, not only Wattpad, but uh, generalized it to other networks too. They all suffer from the chicken egg problem. Without any writer, no reader would join the network because there's, there's no content to consume. Uh, when there's no reader, there's no incentive for any writer to, to upload. So somehow we have to bootstrap this. So we, uh, in the first year, we utilized the, uh, all the classic books, you know, uh, it's public domain. We can import them. We, we, in fact, we imported from Project Gutenberg all the like Charles Dickens works and Pride and Prejudice and all, all the classic books we imported to the Wattpad so that we had at least some content to attract the first, uh, first group of writers, allow me to say. And, uh, and then once we have some writers, we have a very small network. Then once we have the audience, uh, we were able to attract the first writer to write original content and Wattpad and, and that flywheel just, or snowball just started rolling. So, so you, you mentioned in the first startup that you were with, you know, the, the lessons you learned through osmosis of, uh, you know, you, you call it the first rocket ship. You know, you, you, you've been through it a couple of times now. You know, what, what are the biggest lessons you learned about really high growth because you know as 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 I, you know I've, I've heard this over and over again and you've probably experienced it things break you got to fix things break you got to fix what do like how do you get it right and what are some of the biggest mistakes you can make in an environment with you know that sort of, of growth yeah i think getting it right might not be um i might be contradicting myself here but just, just hear me out you might not always get it right in fact, uh, in a fast growth company, you a lot of times you, you 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 have to make decisions without perfect data. You cannot wait too long. You cannot, but uh, you know, if you wait too long to make a decision, the, the optimal timing is already past you. You only have perhaps one week, or I'm just exaggerating, perhaps. Uh, but some of the key decisions, you you only have one week or two months of data to to make a call. So it can be very frightening. But sometimes you just have to kind of seize the opportunity. I think uh, I, I don't want to imply the FOMO is good, you know. Uh, but sometimes uh, there's a window of opportunity that you, you have to capture. So seize the best opportunity in front of you and capture that to, to drive the growth. That's that's very very important. At the same time, uh, that, that's where the contradiction comes in. Not every decision are like that. In what have we kind of built? a decision-making framework. In a way, it's very simple to explain. It's a two-by-two two matrix. We ask ourselves whether this decision is reversible, whether this decision is consequential. And if it's a reversible decision and also inconsequential decision, anyone in the company can make that on the spot. You don't have to ask anyone because press a button. You can, If it's a bad decision, you know that right away. You press a button, you reverse that, right? If it's less reversible or if it's more consequential, then you 
probably can still do it because the, the bad side effect might be very small or in the case of it's still reversible, you know, you press a button, even though it's uh, the side effect perhaps is really negative, but you, you can you, you can still reverse that. The, the one that you require a lot of consideration is the one that is irreversible and consequential. For example, uh, raising another round funding, you cannot undo the funding, right? And that's whether you raise it or not, the right amount with the right investor, you kind of uh, have to be like stuck with that decision for a lifetime of the company, right? So those that type of decisions, you probably would need to spend a bit more time to to consider. And also for that type of decisions, what you really need to think about is uh, seizing the opportunity, of course, the upside, but also think about the downside. What if it's wrong? What if what if it's a bad decision? Can you li limit the, the the damage? What is the damage control here? You know, uh, what is the worst case scenario? And then for that, those type of decisions, having optionality is actually very very important. So you know that well if it goes really wrong and uh, you still have other options ahead of you, then it might not be as bad, you know? So uh, there's a lot of uh, skills that we learn in terms of making high quality, high speed decisions in those environments. I love that matrix. That is, that's really smart. I think, you know, when I'm, I'm hearing you talk about it, it sounds simple. I think that the, the problem is, is in deciphering properly is it consequential or is it not and is it reversible yeah. and is it not because i'm yeah. sure there's there's some decisions that maybe feel reversible yeah. that in reality aren't and some mm -hmm. decisions that that feel inconsequential that real in reality are consequential so you know, i think that the art in that in that matrix is is, is getting it written the right box <laughs> that's right that's right yeah and, and sometimes you know for an experienced uh, leader uh with put some of the, the decisions in the wrong box, you know, and, and experience actually help. Once you have some scars on the back, then you know next time I'm not going to make this uh, irreversible and consequential decision that likely. So before I let you go, Alan, and, I, and again, I very much appreciate your time. The one thing I alluded to earlier on is I, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated with storytelling. I, I think that every part of business and life is all about storytelling. You know, uh, my, my kids know that I'm a quote-unquote investment banker. They have no idea what that means, and I, I basically tell them I'm a storyteller, right? I'm, I'm articulating, you know, uh, why someone should buy something or sell something, and it's, it's all about the, uh, the story. I think that when you're building a company, articulating one's vision is, is, is a form of storytelling. You know, you've, you've been around storytelling for quite some time. You've obviously seen it done well. You've seen it done poorly. What are some of the things you've learned about the art of storytelling and, and, and why some people are so good at it and why, and, and why others are, are not? I guess uh, it's also uh, storytelling is a skill that one can master. The more stories you tell, <laughs> the, uh, the more skillful you are to, to a degree. However, I would, I would say in the business context, utilizing storytelling to communicate your vision, your mission, and, and and basically the, the why the reasons why we are doing X but not Y but not Z you know it's so important because 
to attract the best people and perhaps attract even attract the best partners, whether it's investors or customers, uh, you you have to explain why they have to work with you. And uh, uh, these things cannot be just communicating on on a spreadsheet. It's not numbers. It's not only numbers. It's not only like black and white. Um, a lot of that is is qualitative. So being able to communicate that uh, narrative very succinctly and very precise, perhaps and accurately, actually help people to build trust, help people to build, find the reasons, find the connection, find the relationship. And especially like in today's environment, um, many of us are working remote, remotely. It's just getting a little bit harder to, to connect, just getting a little bit harder to build that relationship. And uh, I think for, for leaders, processing that storytelling skill to explain it's becoming actually more more crucial these days, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I've learned is the story has to be truthful and authentic, right? Because mm-hmm. I think that yeah. if, you, if, if you spin a story that you don't believe in, it's, I think for the, for the most part, people can see through that in two seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So Alan, you know, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Um, you know, for, for those that want to continue following along your journey, potentially get a hold of you. I know, you know, Two Small Fish Ventures, uh, you know, I'm sure you're looking at deal flow there. I know that you, you just recently changed your LinkedIn to say that uh, you're now involved in Webtoon. You know, outside of LinkedIn, is there another way that uh, you'd recommend uh, that people stay in touch and, uh, you know, who want to continue seeing what you're up to? Yeah, that that might be the best way. LinkedIn might, might be a pretty old school uh, professional network, but uh, it allows us to connect. It allows us to remember when we connected and how and get updates, right? This is also, uh, circle back to the point about network effects, right? The network effects is so strong on LinkedIn, it's very, very hard to replicate. So um, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, you can find me on, on Twitter, uh, you can find me on Instagram, although this is more not a, not a professional <laughs> network uh, at all, but uh, you know, go to twosmallfish.vc, uh, and of course, on, on Wattpad too, you know, um, my contact information is fair, is pretty much on the internet. So uh, you can, you, how, how to find me is pretty much one Google away. Again, thank you very much. And until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.